So one of my favorite news stories of all time is a story about Thelma Pearl Howard. She was um, a housekeeper for the family of Walt Disney. And in the early 1950s, he'd appointed her. She'd moved into the family home. She was a kind of very faithful, motherly figure in that family for years and years and years and years until eventually she retired and kind of moved out into a little flat with her disabled son. And eventually she died in 1994, age 79. But it's quite an amazing story because um, at every birthday and every Christmas, Walt Disney would give her bits of paper and um, they were like stocks in the Walt Disney Corporation, but she didn't really know what they were. And, and he just used to say to her, just put these somewhere safe. You know, these will be worth something one day. And so she'd just take these bits of paper and think, oh, that's sweet, that's nice, put them in a the bottom drawer and not really think anything of it. So uh, eventually, aged 79, 1994, she died. Uh, just living in this little flat in Los Angeles with her disabled son, and the executor of the estate came along to kind of clear the flat and, and start to deal with all her property, and he found in this bottom drawer all these bits of paper, and it turned out that she was sitting on $10 million worth of Walt Disney shares, and she had no idea. Now, the point is, she, all her life, for that entire time, she was rich beyond her wildest dreams, and she had no idea. And for us as Christians, so often we live never really grasping, never really fully understanding how truly rich we are, how unbelievably blessed we are. And in fact, the very opposite is true. It's very easy, isn't it, really, to focus on all the ways in which we feel poor, you know, all of the ways in which we experience lack, all the ways in which we feel like we've been in some way overlooked by God, or rather than feeling full of blessing, we feel perhaps empty, and it's much easier to focus on those things and feel like, Lord, have you missed me out? Is there something I've done wrong? And yet the truth is that we are truly blessed, richly blessed. And uh, we're in a, uh, quite near the start of a brand new series called Who Am I? Looking at who are we? Um, and particularly we're going through Paul's letter to the Ephesians uh, because within his, this particular letter, it's absolutely packed with stuff that should shape our sense of who we really are. And we're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 1 and looking at how we're truly blessed. So uh, chapter 1 verse 3, he says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Amen. That's our text for this morning. A few years ago, 
the lovely Tarrant was invited to um, go and visit some Christians who live in a country where it's very dangerous to be a Christian. It was a, a, a former Soviet state uh, that is now in the grip of two really powerful forces. One of them is radicalized Islam, and the other one is uh, kind of militarized communism. And, and these two forces are unbelievably powerful, and it's very dangerous to be a Christian. And so um, I wasn't completely delighted when Taryn was like, oh yeah, I'd like to go and do that. Uh, but, but she did, so she disappeared off for two weeks, and we didn't hear from her very much. And she was meeting and praying with and sharing with and, and um, loving, fellowshipping with these faithful Christians. And when she came back, she kind of talked about two things. One of them was the, just the relentless pressure that these people live under. That, that even to be found in possession of a Bible could be an extremely dangerous thing and, and could result in anything from your children being excluded from school and you losing your job all the way through to people coming to take you in the middle of the night and you never being seen again. Just an extraordinary pressure. That was the first thing. The other thing was their passion for Jesus. Just the way that they adored Jesus in the midst of all of that incredible pressure and, and how they were so passionate for Jesus that they would... Uh, go to amazing risks to introduce people to Jesus. You know, that they, they would offer to pray for people and, and they'd see all kinds of incredible miracles. But obviously, if someone takes that offer for prayer badly, that could be the end. Or, or the, the way that they would say, oh, we're so desperate to meet together, but they couldn't even sing out loud where they lived because if people heard them singing, then that could be the end. And so they would drive for hours with their headlights switched off over fields to get to disused railways where they could just meet together to just sing at the top of their lungs and open the Bible together and all the things that we take utterly for granted. Their passion for Jesus and the relentless pressure. And the reason I tell that story is because that is the kind of pressure that Paul is under when he's writing this letter. You know, he, he actually had been one of the people who had been putting on the pressure that he was a persecutor and then he meets Jesus and he's writing from a place of extreme pressure. In fact, he's writing from prison and we find that, that out later on in the letter and we'll come to that in I think chapter four. But he's writing from a place where the, the pressure is extreme. He says in other places, I, I despaired of life itself because the pressure was so extreme. And, yet, and so you would imagine that the letter would be like, guys, the game's up. You know, I've been captured, I'm in prison, I don't know how much longer I'm going to live for. I, I think it's better if we just all stay quiet. And yet the very opposite is true. What you see in this um, particular passage that we read is the joy, the extreme joy that is kind of bursting out of him. And so he's in prison and he writes what actually is the world's longest sentence. In fact, this sentence, this passage that I read is all one sentence and I only stopped halfway through the sentence. There's another four verses of the sentence to come. It's like he's so bursting with joy that he hasn't got time for punctuation of any kind. And not only is, is it kind of one long sentence, but it's also idea after idea just crashing in on each other. It's like he hardly finishes one idea when he's on to the next of this is the blessing, this and this blessing and this blessing and this blessing is this and this blessing, which is extremely challenging. F 
Far from him allowing his soul to be flooded with disillusionment or disappointment or despair. From allowing himself to believe that he's a victim or that he's afflicted or overlooked. He says, I just want to let you know how incredibly blessed I am. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The worst of circumstances, the bleakest of outlooks, I'm blessed, I'm favoured. Heaven's relentless resources are for me. And it would be easy to get confused at this point and say, well, hang on a minute, what do you mean you're blessed? To the naked eye, you don't look very blessed right now. You know, is this some kind of mental gymnastics that he's doing? Like he's, he's thinking, you know, no, 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 I'm blessed, I'm blessed, when really he knows fine well that he isn't blessed. No, that absolutely isn't true. He qualifies the blessing in three ways. He says he's blessed us in the heavenly realms, So in other words, heaven is oriented towards you with every spiritual blessing, not material blessings. The the blessing is of a nature in which we can't see it with with our eyes. There's something more to it than that. And it's in Christ. It's in the heavenly realms. It's every spiritual blessing and it's in Christ. In other words, even though my life is filled with relentless and Uh, never-ending pressure because I've put my trust in Jesus, because Jesus is my salvation, because he's washed away my sin, all of heaven is leaning towards me. All of heaven is leaning towards me. I lack no spiritual heavenly resource. God has given me everything I need to see this through. And we need to hear that. I don't know what situation you're facing right now, but every spiritual blessing that you need to see yourself through this particular situation that you're facing is in your hands. As the psalmist said, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Another translation says, I lack nothing. You have everything that you need for God to see you through. And I don't know about you, this is only the second week, but I can feel my butt being kicked right now. Because it's so easy to focus on what we don't have. Or to believe that we're the victim of circumstances and that actually we should be pitied. But the truth is that we're truly blessed. And so, again, you might say, well, what does that actually mean, though? Like, it's all very well, you're blessed in the heavenly realms, you're blessed with a spiritual blessing. That's great, thanks very much, but I'm still in prison right now. What does he mean? Well, the good thing is that he goes on to explain. And you might see just that tiny little word at the very beginning of verse 4, and the word is for, F-O-R. And um, I remember when I was a young Christian growing up, somebody said to me once, whenever there's a four, you have to figure out what the four is there for. Right? Have you, anyone ever heard that? Some people, maybe, no. Um, so, but, but the word for is there to, to say, is to, is to link what he's previously said, you're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, with everything else that's about to come in the passage. In other words, he's going to unpack, he's going to explain to us, what does the blessing mean? What kind of blessing do we have? And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, the rest of our passage. Number one, we're blessed with security. 
Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. All three of those clauses in that sentence are just packed with a sense of permanence. Let's look at each one in turn. First of all, we're adopted. Um, Some uh, people in my family, having had a couple of kids of their own, decided that they want to open up their family and welcome in a kid who didn't have any other family. And so they uh, pursued the whole adoption thing. They, they went through all kinds of panels and interviews, apparently very intrusive interviews, asking a lot of in-depth questions, which you would want, wouldn't you, if you're going to entrust a kid into somebody's home. Uh, so all kinds of different uh, activities that they had to do and, and different hoops to jump through. But eventually, after about a year or so, um, they were matched with a little girl. And so within a few weeks of that initial, like, this is going to become your daughter, uh, uh, there was a kind of a transition time, and then within a few weeks she was living with them in, in their family, which was amazing. Uh, but I didn't actually realize that after that period, you know, after all of that stuff, and she's now living in their family, actually the, the, the adoption thing is an instant. I just assumed that would be it. But no, it's like another year or so, I think it was, something like that. And then eventually she got to stand with her new mum and dad and her new siblings, with her new grandparents watching on, as the judge said, it's done. You're adopted into their family. And bless her, this little girl who, who was only young, she'd... Um, experienced such incredible insecurity in her short life. She was subject to all kinds of powers and forces that were way beyond her control. She, her, her case file had more than 20 different professional opinions in it. There were you know, more than 20 different professions of all different kinds involved in her particular case. And everyone had a different opinion. And so she was, you know, she knew that she was subject to all of this conversation, all of this uh, stuff. And, and so even after the judge had said, no, 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 this is it now, You're, you've been adopted, she would ask questions like, so how long do I get to be part of this family for? And her new mum and dad would say, no, no, this is permanent. You'll always be part of our family. doesn't matter whether Theresa May or you know, Queen Elizabeth II wants you to come and live with them. You don't get to do that because you're a permanent, secure member of our family. Your name has been changed. You belong to us. We're your people. Do you understand the security that comes from adoption? That's what God's done for us. He settled matters. No longer are we subject to all kinds of powers and forces that are outside of our control. It doesn't matter whether anyone else wants us to come and live with them and be part of their family. God says, no, this is eternal. It's secure. It's permanent. You belong to me. Your name has been changed. You're a new creation. You are no longer subject to anyone other than me. I'm your father. You're part of my family. We're adopted. We're adopted to sonship. Now, this is a bit awkward because not all of us are male in the room this morning. But uh, for the purposes of this, what we need to understand is that sonship in uh, the kind of ancient world 2,000 years ago in the Middle East was uh, uh, about status. 
you know, households would have been really big, had loads of different people in them, but the son was the heir. The son was the one with the status. The son had all the dignity, all of the authority that the father bestowed on them. They had all of that authority and status. Such a sweet thing. We're adopted as sons of the king. A whole new status, a whole new dignity, a whole new authority in the heavenly realms. And lastly, we're predestined to adoption as sons. Gosh, this might get a bit intense for a moment. Uh, because often as Christians, when we read words like predestined, we freak out, right? We say, oh, oh my goodness, I'm not sure I understand what predestination means. And, and uh, maybe I'll just skip that verse and move on to the bit that comes after that. But we don't need to be intimidated by words like predestined. Because what we do when we come across a word that we don't really understand or, or, or that we think is a bit confusing, what we actually should do is we should say, is there anything simple here that I can understand? And if you look at it, Paul's point is not so much that we're predestined, it's who's doing the predestining. Verse 3, he blessed us. Verse 4, he chose us. Verse 5, he predestined us in accordance with his pleasure and will. We have to grasp the truth that this reality represents. That we were adopted and it was everything that God did. We did nothing. We didn't say, hey, please can you, uh, you know, adopt me because I, I, I'm bringing quite a lot to the table here. We were dead and Jesus made us alive. We were absolutely captive to our sins and Jesus freed us. It's all his initiative. It's his doing. He's the one who's doing the adopting. He predestined us for adoption into sonship. And the reason why that's so important is that it demonstrates that it's all grace. It's all grace. We don't bring anything to the table. Thank goodness our salvation, our relationship with God does not depend on how good we can make ourselves. We didn't bring ourselves in to the family. And the reason why that's important is because that means that we can't bring ourselves out. It's permanent. It's secure. It's eternal. You are secure in your relationship with your Father in heaven. Romans 8.38, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's good news, isn't it? Let's just take a moment, just, just, just take a moment. Your relationship with God is secure. It's permanent. It's eternal. What a sweet thing. Blessed with security. Number two, blessed with freedom. In verse 7, we have these two amazing pictures of what freedom really means. The first one is redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood. I don't know whether you saw the news. I think it was the beginning of this year. It might have been the end of last year. There was a butcher, a 70-year-old butcher called Chris McCabe. And he'd gone out of his butcher shop into his uh, walk-in freezer and there had been a gust of wind and the door had closed behind him and he was trapped inside his own walk-in freezer. And um, not only was it really, really dark, which is quite a bad thing, but also it was minus 20 degrees. And apparently you can only survive in, a, in that kind of temperatures for about half an hour and then you deed. And so he's like, oh no, what do I do? Well, thank goodness there was an emergency release handle on the inside of the door. 
The problem was it was frozen up. Strikes me as being a, um, you know, a design flaw in there somewhere, but it was, it was frozen up. He couldn't get out. And so he's like banging on the door, trying to hail passers-by, but the doors are really thick and the walls are really thick. Just no one could hear it. And the, the next you know, stroke of providence for this poor man was that he managed to find a 12-inch long um, frozen black pudding. And he used it as a battering ram. And he battered the door with this 12-inch long frozen black pudding until the door gave way and he found his way out. Now, what they, they didn't say in the paper was, what other frozen meat did he try before he got oh, his hand on the frozen sausage? You know, it's like taking out great long strings of sausages and using them like nunchucks against the door or something like that. I don't know. But eventually, he battered his way out through the door with his black pudding or battered sausage, as you might want to call it. But the point is... Let me just remember what the point is. So many of us spend our lives trying to find a way out. A way out of the cycle and the pattern or addiction that we find is just way too powerful, has way too much control over our lives. Just desperate. How do, how do I find a way out from underneath this power and it's like, I just don't know how. And so m- many of us spend our whole lives just trying to find a way out. You know, in our society, we use the language of addiction a lot. You know, we can be addicted to lots of things. Interestingly, the Bible doesn't really use the word addiction hardly at all. I think there's one use of the word addiction in the whole of the uh, NIV Bible. The, The Bible uses the language not of addiction, but of slavery. We're slave to a power that we're powerless to be released from. The Apostle Peter says this, 2 Peter 2 verse 19, people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. And of course, that is absolutely true. So what word does the Bible... So if our society uses the word addiction to describe that, and and, uh, the word to be rescued from it is like recovery. You know, I, I recover from my addiction. Well, the Bible uses the word slavery, and the word that the Bible uses for how we find ourselves out of slavery is what? It's redemption. It's redemption. Again and again and again, the Bible says we have redemption. And of course, it was in our passage here. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Maybe that's a word for some people today. You feel entirely powerless to defeat the powers that have mastery over you. But the truth is, In him, we have redemption. We have a rescue. There's a greater power who can defeat all of the powers in our lives. So if the first picture is a release, a a, a rescue from the slavery of sin, the second picture is a release from the consequences of sin. Verse 7, in him we have forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. In South Africa... After the end of apartheid, Mandela created a thing called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I know we've got some South Africans in the room, so I'm on slightly uh, shaky territory, and you can correct me afterwards. But the idea of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was that the truth be heard. You know, that, that the truth of all of the various injustices that had taken place over the previous decades could be heard in public um, 
courts, public rooms, and then uh, certain kinds of consequences could be laid out for people. And uh, I just heard about this one amazing story about an elderly lady who sat opposite this uh, former policeman who was called Mr. Van der Broek. And uh, this elderly lady had met this policeman three times before. The first time was when he'd come to her door, he'd battered down the door, he'd taken uh, her 18-year-old son, taken him away, shot him at point-blank point, point range, and then uh, set a light to his body. The second time was eight years later when Mr. Vanderbrook came back to the house and took her husband. And the third time was some hours later when he came back to the house. He took her in his car. They drove to a place where she was made to watch as her husband was uh, bound put on top of a whole load of um, firewood and then petrol was poured over him and he was burnt to death. And now she was sat opposite Mr. Van der Broek in this courtroom in the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And Mr. Van der Broek confessed to his crimes. And then they turned to this elderly lady and they said, what have you got to say? And often in these moments, the people would describe the utter torture of their you know, circumstances, and then they would demand all kinds of repercussions. In this particular situation, she just said, I want three things. The first thing she said is, I want to be taken to the place where my husband was burned to death so that I can gather up his ashes and give him a proper burial. The second thing she said is, Mr. Vanderbrook took away my family but I've still got a lot of love to give. So twice a month, I want Mr. Vanderbrook to come to my house and we're going to eat together and I'm going to love him as if I would love my own son. The third thing she said is, I'd like Mr. Vanderbrook to know that I completely forgive him because he's already completely forgiven by God and I would like someone to lead me by the hand to Mr. Vanderbrook so that I can embrace him and demonstrate that my forgiveness is real. And two things happen at that point, supposedly. Number one, the whole room bursts spontaneously into amazing grace, just singing out loud. The second thing that happened was that Mr. Vanderbrook collapsed. <coughs> Forgiveness is such a powerful thing, especially when you're on the receiving end. We are rescued from the slavery of sin. And we're forgiven for the consequences of our sin. In him we have forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. What a blessing. And the third thing is we're blessed with purpose. I don't know whether you picked it up, but this week the latest Guinness Book of World Records was released. Anyone know that? Okay, so in this book there are such examples as... Um, Barry John Crow, who now holds the record for the most number of sausages made in a minute. 78, if you're interested. Mark Rober, Ken Glazebrook, Bob Claget, and Danny Juan. Don't know whether that's how you say it or not. They've created the world's largest water pistol. It's 2.2 meters long and it's 1.2 meters tall, so it's about that big. 
uh, or artist Betsy from Wiltshire, who's created the world's longest knitting needles, four metres long. Now, people, these, these are the kinds of people for whom the phrase, get a life, was invented for. Do you know the amazing thing is that for us as Christians, we don't need to spend our lives on things as worthless and useless as that. We can spend our lives on things that are way more important than that. Verse 8. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In other words, the greatest purpose for our lives is this that we unite together as family under the Lordship of Christ. And do you know what? You can do that from a prison cell. You can do that in any circumstance. You can know. You know, uh, if your purpose in your life is to create the world's largest water pistol, you can't do that when people take away everything that you own. But you can still fulfill your greatest purpose on earth. To love your brothers and sisters in Christ and to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, you can do that with nothing. They can take away everything that you own, everything that you are, everything, you know, you can have nothing left and still you can fulfill your greatest purpose on earth. So we may be hard-pressed, we may experience loss, grief, sorrow, pain, but we are blessed. And may that be at the deepest part of who we are, our sense of who we really are. Why don't we stand?